What on earth are you doing in this benighted city? I'm, uh, I'm just passing through, but you, Elliot, I thought you never left Paris. Why should I? In point of fact, I came to see my sister, my niece, Isabel. I haven't been back since before the war. <laughs> I hope you don't mind. A few young things are joining us for dinner, but uh, we can leave early. Why should I mind? I like young things if they're good to look at. Hello, and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week is the final week of the 1946 nominees, and we are finishing it out with The Razor's Edge, which was a wild-ass trip of a movie. Yeah. For some of it. For some of it. I mean, generally speaking, it's kind of low rent great Gatsby. It's dealing with a lot of the same themes. It's kind of like, oh, a lot of people probably didn't get the thematic subtlety of Great Gatsby. (laughs) So like, let's just have Daisy be a fucking monster. It also, because of that, is this incredibly weirdly shaped thing. Yeah, weirdly shaped is, that's, I've been trying to think about how to describe this film because it's two and a half hours long almost, is like 226. Yeah. And at the point where the movie starts to be absolutely fascinating instead of incredibly fucking boring, I had to check what the timestamp was and it was literally an hour and a half. We were an hour and a half into this movie and it went from being basically this guy's fucking gap year (laughs) where he goes to a yoga retreat and becomes enlightened after being an insufferable dick who like quotes poetry all the time and then became this edge of your seat psycho thriller it was amazing but is it worth the hour and a half you have to invest in the beginning? Almost certainly not. No. <laughs> and I honestly don't think it needs to be that bad. For one thing, yeah, his gap year could just take up way less time. There's a part when he gets to India, uh, which, who boy, we're going to need to expound on that for a little while. <laughs> oh, yeah. But there's a part in there where he just says directly that he has not been able to articulate what he wants or what he is searching for. And you're like, oh, of course, that's why this movie has sucked so far, is because that's just deeply uninteresting to watch a protagonist that doesn't know what they want just sort of wander around and stare at things and go, "Mm, not this. Yeah, if you're going to show me a guy's gap year where he goes backpacking to India... I want to see him go party in Goa or something. I mean, granted, they don't actually show him sitting and meditating all the time, but that's almost more boring than if they did because it's like, here he is at the ashram. Then the next thing is the guru is like, go up to the mountain. And the next scene is, okay, now you saw God, you're enlightened, go back out into the world. And there's none of the practice shown at all no it's literally those three scenes there's nothing in between (laughs) well and also the guru talks about god it's like how the x-files dealt with native americans where you could tell they wanted to be respectful and wanted to be like well we're giving you all of this wisdom so we're presenting you positively 
But also we did basically no research whatsoever, and the wisdom we're giving you is just kind of Protestantism with some of the serial numbers filed off. Like, it's just so clearly Western philosophy packaged as Eastern philosophy. Or Eastern philosophy that has been distilled into something that is comprehensible to Western mindsets. Because there's definitely... I mean, Hinduism, first of all, is so massive that any one movement can be ascribed to a singular spiritual leader at any given time. And there are multiple sects of Hinduism that essentially, I wouldn't even say they're monotheistic, but they believe that there is one singular universal consciousness or God or Brahma or whatever, and that everything else is a manifestation of that. So that's not totally wrong it's just that the thing is very watered down that yeah it just essentially becomes like lutheranism (laughs) right yes you could make this match up with hinduism if you really really wanted to but i think you'd be doing that work and not the movie oh absolutely (laughs) absolutely Yeah, so I guess we should get into the beginning plot, because it's very easy. Yeah. Very handsome guy who is played by Tyrone Power is involved with incredibly beautiful girl played by Jean Tierney. She comes from a very wealthy family. They're engaged. He's been off at the war, in this case, World War One. comes home and he basically is like, I just want to loaf for a bit. and not get a job which is not acceptable to her a year later they meet up in paris and he's decided that he just wants to live on his inheritance of three thousand dollars a year which i did the math on and is 45 grand a year guaranteed for life and she's like no i couldn't possibly live like that and i'm just thinking Oh my god, that would be amazing, where you just have, like, a guaranteed middle-class income for the rest of your life. (laughs) Right. That's, like, the number people throw around for guaranteed minimum income, where people are like, you just can't make it work, it's impossible, we could never give people that much money. Right. And this is an inheritance, it's not like he's getting it from the government, but still. Right, yes. That's very comfy. Is it rich? No, but it's totally comfortable. Right. Often we do the conversion from, like, 19-whatever money, and I'm like, eh, who cares? It's X amount of money. But in this case, it's weirdly important that you know that that's $45,000 a year, because it's actually your only sign for about an hour of what the plot of this movie is, which is that Gene Tierney is a monster. Oh, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) uh, Unforgivably, unquestionably, unjustifiably, she is a monster. So anyway, instead of marrying the guy that she is in love with, she marries a mutual friend that has been in love with her forever, who is very, very wealthy. And then there's a weird thing that feels like it comes out of nowhere, but actually ends up being very important in the interesting part of the movie, where another mutual friend of theirs who is a bit younger, but has already been married and has just had a baby, gets into a car crash and her husband and child both die. And then Jean Tierney's new husband, whose name is something? Yeah, Gray. his name is something. Yeah. <laughs> the doctor goes to Gray and says, 
you've known her for a long time. Why don't you tell her that her husband and baby are both dead? (laughs) And in about as much wherewithal as he has through the entire movie, he goes, me? (laughs) And then does it. Yes. Which is very upsetting, obviously, to this woman. And then we don't see her for a very long time. The woman's name is Sophie. Anyway, then we have a whole bunch of Tyrone Power going around having a gap year. It is exceedingly fucking boring. (laughs) He runs into some drunk guy who tells him to go to India to become enlightened, and then he does it. (laughs) Right. I mean, the problem here is that apparently we need to watch every fucking step of this thing, where in another movie, I feel like he would occasionally send letters to the rest of this plot. And be like, I've now moved on to India. And instead, he's like, there's a blind man that he plays cards with at his job at the factory. And it's like, no one cares about all these details. Like, kill your darlings, man. Make this scene two minutes tops, not like five minutes. Yeah, because here's the thing. There's a lot of stuff in the first hour and a half of this film that is really important to the last hour, which is interesting, but none of the gap year stuff is interesting. Like, this is montage material, my man. (laughs) For sure. It also, in addition to being boring, makes you extremely confused about what this movie is about. Because it spends so much time on Tyrone Power having a gap year that you don't actually put together like why am i watching this woman get told that her husband and son are dead when are he and isabel gonna get back together because at this point you kind of think that's gonna be the shape of this thing still and kind of want it to be because you don't hate her yet (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it is just this strangely huge amount of screen time spent on him gaining enlightenment and the enlightenment i mean the scene where he sees god is fine. Sure. It works in terms of, I understand why he is a changed character after that scene. Right. But it doesn't work in the sense of, honestly, you could just tell me that happened off screen. Because it's not like watching him say it is particularly engaging. And he has a whole big monologue about it and whatever. But the guru tells him that he has to go back to his people, which... Which I just kind of interpreted it as, look, white boy, please get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Which is not, I think, the intention at all, but it made me feel better. Anyway, so he goes back to Paris and runs into our narrator, who is Somerset Mom, who was also the writer of the novel on which this is based. Right. Who comes in and out throughout the film as needed. They run into Jean Tierney's rich uncle Elliot, and then go and visit Jean Tierney and Grey. Grey lost absolutely everything, everything, quote unquote, in the stock market crash. And now they are living on the scant $45,000 in 2021 money a year with two kids. And it is absolutely devastating for them. They only have the support of having free servants from Uncle Elliot. Right. That's all. (laughs) And the most gorgeous Parisian apartment with like 15 foot ceilings. The interiors of this film are incredible. (laughs) Yeah. 
And in the movie's defense, Somerset Maugh, who weirdly inserts himself into the narrative, like you think this is going to be a sort of narrator sits back and is a passive observer of the folly of man thing. And he is weirdly active in the plot. Yes. Comes in and is like, I don't know, seems like you're doing all right, you rich fucks. (laughs) (laughs) And you're like. Which fair. Yeah. (laughs) Because they are. Anyway, Gray has had a nervous breakdown because they lost so much money and he has headaches all the time and he's kind of afraid to go out or whatever. And then Tyrone Power does some kind of like, I don't know, magic hypnotizing trick on him. He hypnotizes him. He hypnotizes him, Susan. Like that's, it's nothing. It's not a real thing, but he straight up like Gilligan's Island style hypnotizes him. Right. And then he's cured forever. (laughs) Right. From this one 30 second hypnosis session. They all decide to go out to dinner and after dinner decide that they want to go to, you know, the cool neighborhood of Paris that's also kind of dangerous and the clubs are there and they may get shut down and suddenly this movie opens up and becomes excellent out of nowhere (laughs) yeah because sophie comes back right the lady whose husband and son died appears and is just blackout drunk and you're like oh i now understand why that scene was there earlier um because she is now part of the plot again And Jean Tierney's character, Isabel, is increasingly just a terrible person about it. Like, even before we get to her doing the unforgivable thing, she's just like, I don't know, we tried to help her for a while, but she's just a drunk. She just likes being a drunk who lives in the gutter. Oh, it's even worse than that. She wouldn't get over the fact that she lost her newborn baby and her husband in the same car crash. Like, she just never stops talking about it. And what were we going to do? Well, see, here's the thing is... That requires Larry's Eastern wisdom to suggest that, hey, do you think her drinking all the time has something to do with the tragic death of her husband and baby? And everybody in the car goes, I know she just wouldn't get over it. We like spent a whole social season on it and she just (laughs) kept doing it. Right. There's just always been something wrong with her, you know? Mm -hmm. God, she's a fucking monster (laughs) yeah oh my god she's so evil uh yeah so that happens and then we time jump a little bit and larry calls up gene tierney's character and goes hey i've been spending a lot of time with sophie and she's not drinking anymore and she's way better and in fact we're getting married which should be fine because Isabel is married and has kids as we, I think established, but that was a while back. And instead Isabel friggin loses it and goes, okay, well, we're going to go out with her and I'm going to prove that she is just going to ruin his life and be terrible for him. And the narrator author character goes, do you, like, have a secret evil plan? And she goes, maybe. (laughs) And then they all go out anyway for some reason, and she all but waves bottles of alcohol in front of Sophie's face for an entire afternoon. That doesn't work, so she goes, well, let's go dress shopping together alone, and then I'll do that again more while talking about how sad she must be to not have a husband and kid anymore. Yes, and also she offers to buy her wedding dress. 
Mm-hmm. They're not just going to go dress shopping. She's going to purchase it. But really, Uncle Elliot is going to pay for it. Right. Sophie comes over to the apartment. And of course, Isabel, Jean Tierney's character, is conveniently not ready or whatever or gets a call after bringing out this alcohol that they were drinking at the lunch, which is some kind of Ukrainian liqueur or something. Uncle Elliot described it as tasting like music by moonlight. (laughs) And she just sort of waves it in front of her and pours herself this giant glass and then goes off to her bedroom to do something and basically leaves Sophie alone with this alcohol. And Sophie does a pretty good job for a while and then breaks down because she's looking at a picture of Isabel's daughter. Isabel comes out and says, oh yeah, that's when she was however old. And Sophie says she's so pretty or whatever. And Isabel says, oh, well, wouldn't your child be that age about now? And then runs off again, leaving Sophie understandably emotionally distraught and around a big bottle of booze. So Sophie ends up drinking and then runs off. Yeah. And we basically jump cut to Larry finding her in an opium den where she's just out of her mind. And Larry gets the shit beaten out of him by people in the opium den and just sort of gives up. And a year later, the police come to Somerset and tell him that Sophie is dead, that somebody killed her. And are weirdly Inspector Clouseauing it, which I actually kind of love that the police are like, did you do it? Your inscription is in her book. And you're like, oh, the French just do this with everyone. <laughs> actually. Yeah, it's apparently not funny. It's it's just that the French detectives are incredibly bad. <laughs> yeah. But both Larry and the narrator, author, character are understandably extremely sad that Sophie is dead. And she dies horribly. Yeah. Her throat was cut and she was dumped in a river. Yeah. And the police are like super shitty about it, which is again, I think to this movie's credit, that they're like, I don't know, I've heard a lot about her proclivities. And then (laughs) I forget why there's like a picture of her husband. But they're like, this is her dead husband and son. And they're like, oh, we didn't know anything about her having a dead husband and son. Whoops. Eh. Anyway. But that is, yeah. (laughs) That's a real bummer. That's a real bummer. And the movie also goes anyway, because it then jump cuts again to Uncle Elliot, who's been kind of the snobbish society guy for the whole movie on his deathbed. And he's been just a real asshole to Larry. Like, for the whole first act where you can't get a handle on what this film is, you think he is actually the obstacle between Larry and Isabel getting together? Because he's constantly like, what's with this layabout? Like, why won't he just join the stock market like everyone else? And Larry sort of helps to fulfill Elliot's deathbed wish of being invited to this shitty lady's masquerade ball, basically. By going to a friend that he knows, because Larry constantly has a friend that he knows, who works for the lady having the ball, and stealing an invitation, basically. But the scene where he does it is actually sort of cute. I'm kind of glad it's in the movie, unlike a lot of the just sort of weird one-off characters he talks to in the first half of the movie. I love the secretary for the princess. She basically says, look... 
the princess can't stand Elliot and doesn't want him to be there. And Larry explains, look, he's on his deathbed. He's not going to show up. It would just mean the world to him to be invited. And she says, well, I'm going to turn my back and admire the beautiful view. And if one of those invitations should disappear, I wouldn't even know. And then start singing an Irish folk song. <laughs> right. And it, it takes him about three seconds to steal this invitation, but she kind of does this whole verse of it. And he comes over and kisses her on the cheek with the invitation in his hand and jumps off this little, I assume, small balcony and runs away while she's still singing. So it's not like it was going to be a mystery to her anyway. I just love that like she doesn't even have vague plausible deniability about it. She's just committed to singing this song and it's very cute and I want to give this movie some credit for actually making her look believably like a frazzled librarian lady unlike Donna Reed in It's a Wonderful Life. (laughs) She has kind of part of her neck that has some hair growing out of it. Like it's just been a minute since she went and got her hair cut. She looks fine, but she just looks like she's been incredibly busy with her job for a while. Unlike Donna Reed is a librarian who looks like she spends every morning three hours trying to look like that. Yes. This scene is sort of emblematic of one of the things that frustrates me about this movie, which is that Larry is un godly pretentious and yet i can't help but like him because he's a good guy yeah but he like quotes keats in discussing sophie and at one point when he goes to all the bars to look for her he's literally wearing a fucking beret (laughs) in his defense so is sophie yeah but you know what i'm gonna be kind of like an asshole about gender roles here but you know women can wear berets women do just look way better wearing berets it is true That's just a fact. It's the fedora thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's not that guys look bad in berets. It's that every guy who wears a beret is an asshole. (laughs) Oh, it's also that men look bad in berets. I actually think it's both. I think that whatever strange disease made it so that men all looked bad in hats after the 1960s hit berets maybe the hardest. And I think earlier. Mm, That's true. Because when I watch shit... That's set in the 60s, even if it's filmed today. Like in Mad Men, everybody looks good in a fedora. Yeah, and the beret, it always looks like a parody when a guy is wearing a beret. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And yet, I still like the guy because he always does the right thing. He does always do the right thing, and he actually... For the first half of this movie, I was ready to kind of rag on Tyrone Power because this is such an Oscar bait role. Oh, yeah. And the first half of the movie is just him staring and having man emotions that he won't speak of. And, ah, hmm, men. Ah, (laughs) men. And that's kind of all he has to do until he has his vision of God. And I was really ready to rag on the dude, but he actually makes Larry this, like, believably good guy. Yeah. Not a, like, square-jawed Superman kind of a good guy, but a, like, no, I know what I have to do. I'm just going to go do the thing I have to do. Good guy. That makes you feel like, oh, there was a point to all that shit he did. I didn't need to watch it, but there was a point to it. As a character, this was actually a really good amount of growth and he experienced a lot of things and became a genuinely good person who cares about other people. Uh, But yeah, I didn't need to watch all of that. Yeah. 
Anyway, Elliot dies after getting the invitation. Yes. And leaves all of his money to Isabel, Jean Tierney's character. So now they're rich again. And she got what she wanted. Except for one thing. Right. And so she goes and does maybe the worst pitch she could possibly do to try and get Larry back. Because it starts with like, hey, screw my husband. You know how much he sucks? I'm pretty sure he wanted to kill himself at one point. And it's like, (sighs) that doesn't mean that he sucks. That means he had a really hard time and you should support him. And then she goes, oh, it was so stupid of me to let you go off on that dumb gap year vision quest where you clearly learned nothing and it was all pointless. (laughs) And he goes, uh, um, no. And she goes, "Uh, why, why can't we connect? You love me. I love you. Let's run away together and screw my husband and children. And he goes, hey, so like, Sophie, did you do a big murder on her? Uh, I mean, that's not, ex- <laughs> that's not exactly how it shakes out. He says, did you know Sophie died? And she acts as if she didn't, which I assume she must have known. No, I no, because of the order in which it is. I think she doesn't actually, because he just broadly questions what happened with Sophie. And when she confesses to having wanted to make her drink and driving her to drink. She's weirdly proud of it in this way where going, she died, shuts her up. (laughs) Because I think like it was sort of all fun and games and like society parties. And she sure showed Sophie that she doesn't belong in society with her and Larry. And then Larry's like, hey, you killed somebody. (laughs) But yeah, he tells her that she was murdered. And Isabel asks, do they know who did it? And he says, no, but I do. And that was just fucking, oh, I I cheered. (laughs) Yeah. Then asks her, did you get her to drink? And Isabel goes on this just shameless, shitty justification that is not a justification for why she did it. And he leaves and she ever a step behind is like, I don't think I'm ever going to see him again. And it's like, yeah, no shit. (laughs) Yeah. But he goes off on a tramp steamer because legally the way that he's an ascetic means that he has to. That's the only way for him to cross the Atlantic. (laughs) And the last shot is clearly they spent like way too much money to do a really big dramatic shot of him on a storm tossed boat. As credits roll. Because it's literally just the shot. Yeah. There's no scene, nothing. Yeah. The narrator character does a sort of big wrap up monologue. Like, he has all he needs in the world. He's a good person. (laughs) Unlike you. And then (laughs) they cut to credits. Yeah, I didn't even... Was it... I guess he doesn't say I'd like you, but God, it feels like he just says it outright. <laughs> yeah, he sort of makes this speech about how even if they go and are both living in America, the Americas they'll live in will be too hugely different for them to ever meet. And you're like, oh, this is a class commentary thing. And it's like, oh, no, he's in the America where you have a soul. That's actually what he's saying. <laughs> right. He's a good person and you're a shit heel, so... <laughs> Yeah, you're just never going to hang out because you suck. Yeah, she does suck. It is nice to watch a 
a woman must be punished for not standing by her man movie where you're like, you know, she actually does kind of need to be punished. <laughs> she does really suck. So this makes sense as a way to organize the movie. Yeah. And, you know, I was not of that opinion at first because the thing is, she's not being punished for not standing by her man. She's being punished for not standing by her man and then not wanting anyone else to stand by her man either and basically sending them to their death in order to stop that. Because it could have been Sophie, it could have been anybody, it doesn't matter. And it's very, very clear that her justification of Sophie is a bad person, that she would have done that for anybody. She just didn't want him to be with anyone who wasn't her. Oh, for sure. I think that you're right that it doesn't make her a bad person to not stand by her man in this movie, but ultimately that is the thing she could have done to not be punished in this way. It would have actually been worse for Larry, as the movie sort of makes clear in the third act. She could have kept him, but he would have not been able to go on this journey and become a better person. Right. And... I don't know. It, in that way, is a really interesting movie, but it is a movie that is way more interesting on paper than in practice. The actual filmmaking and plotting of this movie makes it pretty hard to watch and not that entertaining. But when you start digging into, what is this movie about? Why was this movie made? What is this movie trying to say? Oh, this is actually a really interesting and good movie. <laughs> Yeah. It's just not particularly well made. It's it's just a fucking mess in the way that it's made. And the way that it starts where it's just, you know, rich people at parties having banter. I was like, oh, okay, so we're going to do one of these, right? I know how this works. Yeah. Everybody just kind of chit chats together and then there's a romance, whatever. And then it isn't that. And then there's all of Larry's, you know, working in a coal mine and all of this other shit. <laughs> Right. And then Sophie shows back up and it takes this turn and becomes a pretty tight movie, actually. After being so incredibly loose and messy for the majority of its runtime. <laughs> Here's the thing that I think structurally starts happening when Sophie shows back up is I think this movie becomes the shape it is meant to be. It actually should stay in that society world the whole time and have these interruptions of the real world into it. Mm. Have Larry's unwillingness to just go work at the stock market and Sophie's grief and this narrator being kind of a wry asshole who also at one point kind of tries to sleep with Isabel and it's very weird. Oh God, I forgot about that. Have those characters more kind of poking at this society world that Uncle Elliot and Isabel are in, especially in the first half, you feel like you're just occasionally coming back to the society world. Mm -hmm. And it makes it really unclear, like, what this movie is, who you're supposed to be following, what you're supposed to care about. Whereas the shock of something disrupting that system would make it a lot clearer that like, oh, Larry is important. Sophie is important. These things are important because they're breaking us out of the niceties of dumb rich assholes in Europe. <laughs> yes. The thing is, I don't think I've ever watched a movie for this project, even bad ones, where I have so desperately wanted it to be remade. Because there's a good movie here. It's just there's an hour of shit between 
the setup for the good movie and the good movie. <laughs> yeah. In a way, I really wish that instead of making a great Gatsby movie, Baz Luhrmann did a movie of this. Oh my God, that would be so good. The over-the-top Baz Luhrmann-ness of him works a lot better with this version of the sort of great Gatsby class commentary than with actually great Gatsby, where you end up going like... The eyes. Do you see what the eyes represent? They're the eyes. They're watching you. They're eyes. And like... I actually haven't seen it because I was so frustrated that they made Daisy blonde when there's like a million references in the book to her having black hair that I was like, I can't do this. It will just make me insane. I just can't. Yeah. Also, as much as I love her, Sally Sparrow is fucking terrible casting uh, for Daisy. The the uh, I just call her Sally Sparrow because that's where I first saw her. <laughs> but I now can't get that name out of my head to remember what the actual actress's name is. She's nominated for an Oscar this year. The the not Elizabeth Debicki because she plays Jordan Carrie Mulligan. Yes. There we go. I just googled promising young woman because I could remember the name of the movie she was most recently in, but could not remember her name. <laughs> Anyway, this has been David Needs IMDb Corner. Now, back to the movie. Uh, yeah, she's not a daisy. And that's fine. People get cast incorrectly all the time. That's not her fault. She's actually an excellent actor. Anyway, uh, yeah, you need someone like Jean Tierney, actually, to play Daisy. <laughs> you need somebody that feels a little bit emptier than Carrie Mulligan ends up feeling in that movie. Once you get past the fact that Daisy is extremely pretty, you kind of want to go like, who? Her? Is she funny or something? <laughs> oh, she's a totem. Oh, I get it now. Right. And Jean Tierney plays that in this film and does it really, really well. And the thing is, we saw her in another film where she was the only good thing about it or the most good thing about it. Having him wait. Yeah. And she was very sympathetic she was very sweet. She had a very complex character in a movie where a lot of people were not and were completely nonsensical. And that she is able to play this incredibly beautiful, spoiled, rather evil person. I I think she's actually maybe a fantastic actor. I would agree. Yeah. Like, I think not only is she a terrible person, like we've been really going in on Isabel, but she's an internally consistent evil person. Yes. She is an evil person that actually doesn't just reveal herself to be a mustache twirling villain in the third act. You actually see how you get from like, oh, she kind of cares about money too much to... Oh, you just expressed absolutely no regret to finding out you killed someone. Yeah. Like, you see how she would make that journey without it feeling over the top and ridiculous in the way that, I don't know, almost every villain we've watched so far has been. Yes. In Screen Test of Time. I agree with you. I would really like to see a remake of this. I do still kind of feel like it's Baby's first Great Gatsby, but there's something to that. Yeah. Just making a broad, crowd-pleasing, hit-it-out-of-the-park Great Gatsby? Like, sure, let's fucking do it. Absolutely. You know, talking about her being internally consistent in a film that is so inconsistent... There is a scene that we didn't talk about where when she has decided that she's not going to marry Larry, that she's going to break off their engagement, she does suggest that they have this last night in Paris. And they go out and they have this very romantic last night. And she basically tries to sleep with him 
to get pregnant so that he will have to marry her and will have to take a good job. He doesn't go along with it because, again, he's a good guy. Then she tells Elliot that she couldn't go through with it. I actually kind of believe her. Or at least I think there's this complicated thing there where I think Larry is a good enough guy. It did not really occur to him that that was the goal, that like the night would end with them sleeping together. But I do think that there is this moment where you can also see in that scene where she goes, okay, this is going to end with us sleeping together. I need him to leave if I don't want that to happen. And is the one who tells him to leave in a way where you then are like, well, then why did you go through all of this? It's complicated. Like, she is allowed to be a complicated bad person rather than just, well, the bad guy is here and they're going to do the evil thing. And yeah, she does a really great job with the performance to a degree that I think almost kind of hurts the film because I don't think you really understand she's the villain until, like you say, an hour and a half into the film. Yeah. But I think in retrospect, she was really giving a great performance the whole way through. The movie just didn't know how to support the complex shit she was doing until Sophie showed up and gave you kind of a North Star to figure out what the fuck you were supposed to feel about anything. Right. (sighs) Anyway, we should rate this movie because we also have to say if the Academy chose correctly. Yeah. Uh, God, this is like, this is a tilt for me. (laughs) I want to say seven. Like seven just popped into my brain and I'm not sure I can support it. See, normally I would be like an hour's worth of shit that could be cut out of a two and a half hour movie absolutely does not support a seven. There is no way. There's no way. But that last hour is so good. The longer I sit with it, the more I really kind of like this movie. I Again, I would like to see a remake, like you say. I don't think it's particularly well made. But the longer I sit with it, the more I think, oh, yeah, it's smart about this. It's really cool when this happens. I do really like the scene where Sophie and Larry, blah, blah, blah. Because honestly, I don't know why I picked those two. They don't actually have a lot of scenes together. (laughs) But the movie, I think if we were sitting down and doing the math in the way that is simultaneously a joke and not a joke about the objective ratings we're doing... I don't think I could justify a seven here, but it just feels right. It just feels like the good of this movie outweighs the bad enough for that to be worth reflecting in the score. Right, right. How far up does a 10 for an hour bring an hour and a half of a a total mess? (laughs) Right. And I think... In the sort of math we've done of that previously, we've argued that's a five. We're talking about a five here. Right. I don't think we are. Because again, I think, like I say about that very early scene between Larry and Isabel, there's a lot of stuff that once you figure out what this movie is, you can actually go back and, oh, actually some stuff in the first half of the movie is interesting too. The movie wasn't well made enough for me to understand that until I had Sophie to build off of. Yeah, I mean, it's totally necessary setup to make that last hour work. It's just 30 minutes of the first hour and a half are necessary setup for that, not 90 minutes. 
Yeah, I think that's true. And I also think a lot of the stuff that is necessary setup is also really well done, but really well done for that last hour in this way where you're like, why did they make these choices? And once you understand why they made those choices, those scenes are actually very good, but you don't have the context when you're watching the movie straight through. Right. That's a problem. That isn't a good thing. And they're also interwoven so much with just absolute filler. Yeah. I'm willing to say seven. Yeah. But also, like, don't watch this movie? Yeah, I don't think so. I went over to a friend's place recently, and one of them started talking about the Snyder Cut of Justice League for a while. And they were not the first person I've heard say vaguely positive things about the Snyder Cut. But it clicked into place for me that everyone I've heard say anything nice about it sounds like they have Stockholm Syndrome. Because the movie's (laughs) four fucking hours long. They just came out of it and were like, I can't say that it was terrible because I invested this much time in it. Right. And because you've invested this much time in it, you do kind of start digging for gold, right? Like you just have to find something there. And it turns out there is some stuff, but like also the movie is four hours long, so I will never watch it because Jesus. In this case, I do feel like a little bit of that seven is probably Stockholm Syndrome just because the movie's really long. Right. And during the boring part, I'm kind of looking for like... I actually kind of liked the performance by the blind guy at the coal mine. The scene's totally (laughs) unnecessary. He never comes back. It's kind of too broad, but I did kind of like it. It was sort of fun. I think that in that way, you shouldn't have to commit two and a half hours to this. You will have a good time question mark by the end of it. You will also have a bad time by the end of it. Yeah, so I have the exact opposite experience where when we got to the part where it started to be good and it really got my attention, I was looking for shit that was wrong because I was so mad about the first hour and a half being an absolute just tedious drag. Mm -hmm. And it still was great. So maybe that's where my seven is coming from. I tried to hate this part and it was fantastic i just mean in terms of weighting the good over the bad maybe i am stockholm syndroming a little bit Mm. but i agree with you that i also spent the back half of the movie going like how is this going to fall apart again how is this going to suck and it doesn't yeah but yeah don't watch this somebody should remake it um but like it's it's a wonderful life right yeah the movie that should have won is absolutely it's a wonderful life The best years of our lives was doing something pretty valiant. I'll say that The Razor's Edge, the novel, I think, tries to do what the best years of our lives does. And I'm curious as to how well it succeeds, because in theory, Larry is supposed to be very traumatized by his experience in the war. And that's why he is feeling directionless and like he needs to find something. It does not come off that way that he is traumatized at all. It just seems like he's a bit rudderless yeah no his first monologue about it very early in the film does not land to the degree that when he kind of brings it back up toward the end of the movie you're like oh right he was in the war yeah because it's been like a long ass time since that informed anything in the movie Mm -hmm. i don't think it's effective in that way i will say i think best years of our lives 
I sort of said that at the time that it is three good scenes, but forgets the no bad ones part. And those three good scenes kind of keep growing in my estimation, but I am also glad I don't have to watch all the bad ones again. <laughs> like, I am not eager to go out of my way to watch the best years of our lives again. Oh, God, never. But I do think what those good scenes did, I do kind of think more and more, yeah, that was actually really good. I'm glad I saw those for part of this project, not enough to watch that whole movie again. The Henry V is just not very Ugh. fucking good. Ugh. The Yearling, I think we're going to disagree whether that's like in third or fourth place, basically. I just don't feel like there's anything that even compares except for the last hour of The Razor's Edge. And you can't say like, if you cut out an hour and a half of this movie or an hour then it's uh, still not a close second, but a much closer second. I think The Yearling is a better made movie than you do, but it's also absolutely not my thing at all. It didn't really do anything for me. So yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a wonderful life, period. And there's not really, (laughs) there's not even anything that compares in this year. No, like I get why Razor's Edge was nominated. I get why Best Years of Our Lives was nominated. Uh, even a little bit. Well, actually, I get why everything was nominated. It's just some of the reasons why they were nominated are bad. <laughs> yeah, the American tendency to be impressed with the English ever doing Shakespeare, even when it's crap, <laughs> is a problem. <laughs> yeah, and The Yearling is, I do think, a step forward for filmmaking in a sort of absolute putting images on the screen sort of a way. Right. But I just think it's a boring ass movie. And so, yeah, I think it's a wonderful life, no contest. Like, it's the only thing here that stands the screen test of time. Yeah. It's the only thing that's aged well, with the last hour of Razor's Edge aging okay, and everything else just kind of being a disaster. Once again, the Academy chose wrong. <laughs> yeah. So next week, we are watching yet another seasonally inappropriate Christmas movie. Oh, we're starting off with Miracle on 34th Street? We are. That is wild, because doesn't it come out pretty... No, that movie releases June 11th of 1947. Don't know why. Okay, (laughs) that is wild. Okay. I assumed that we were doing yet another one of those years where everything comes out like December 1st to December 18th or whatever. I mean, to be fair, Die Hard came out in July. That's So you can put out a Christmas movie in the summer. <laughs> okay, but I now want to do a galaxy brain <laughs> meme that has the middle step be Die Hard as a Christmas movie and the galaxy brain step be Miracle on 34th Street isn't a Christmas movie. It's a summer blockbuster. <laughs> Yeah. (sighs) Yeah, so tune in next week to find out if, in fact, Miracle on 34th Street is not a Christmas movie. (laughs) Yeah. Until then, this was a movie. I want to do something clever. Some of this was a movie. Some of this was a movie. Some of this was a movie. (laughs) Some of it was a novel, I think. It's very confusing. (sighs) Goodbye, everybody. Bye. The cards are on the desk. I am going to look out of the window to observe the beauty of the prospect. And what happens when my back is turned? Neither God nor man can hold me responsible for. By yon bonny banks and by yon bonny braes, where the sun shines bright on Loch Lomond, where me and my truth.
Thank you, Miss Keith. Together, on the bonny, bonny banks of Loch Lomond.